Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning and welcome to the Bausch Health third quarter 2020 earnings call. All participants will be in listen-only mode. Should you need assistance, please signal a conference specialist by pressing the star key followed by zero. After today's presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To ask a question, you may press star then one on your touchtone phone. To withdraw your question, please press star then two. Please note this event is being recorded. I would now like to turn the conference over to Art Shannon. Please go ahead. Thank you, Sarah. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our third quarter 2020 financial results conference call. Participating on today's call are Chairman and Chief Executive Officer, Mr. Joe Papa, and Chief Financial Officer, Mr. Paul Herendine. In addition to this live webcast, a copy of today's slide presentation and a replay of this conference call will be available on our website under the Investor Relations section. Before we begin, we'd like to remind you that our presentation today contains forward-looking information. We would ask that you take a moment to read the forward-looking statement legend at the beginning of our presentation as it contains important information. This presentation contains non-GAAP financial measures. For more information about these measures, please refer to slide two of the presentation. Non-GAAP reconciliations can be found in the appendix to the presentation posted on our website. Finally, the financial guidance in this presentation is effective as of today only. It is our policy to generally not update guidance until the following quarter and not to update or affirm guidance other than through broadly disseminated public disclosure. With that, it's my pleasure to turn the call over to Joe. Thank you, Art, and thank you, everyone, for joining us today. We want to spend the bulk of today's call focused on the business fundamentals, so I'll start with our current perspective on COVID-19 and briefly cover some of the third quarter highlights before turning the call over to Paul Herendine, our CFO to review the financial results in detail and discuss our 2020 guidance. We'll finish with updates on how our businesses are recovering and on the previously announced plan to spin off Bausch & Law before opening the line for questions. Beginning with slide five, although COVID has impacted the market over the past seven months, we have been able to adapt to the challenges of current market conditions by following the strategy we outlined on our last call by specifically focusing on our key promoted brands managing our operational expenses, and investing in innovation and new growth technologies like e-commerce. For example, we are continuing to innovate. We launched Infuse, our side-high daily lens in the USA. We are conducting clinical trials on our Novo 3 product for dry eye disease, and Rifaximin received FDA orphan designation for sickle cell disease, a very exciting development. And we are also conducting COVID-focused research that may help advance science. Ribavirin is being studied as a possible COVID-related therapeutic in Italy and Canada, and our ivermectin product is being studied as a COVID therapeutic in Latin America. Our global Sulta business is well-positioned to capitalize on emerging trends such as the new Zoom culture, which we believe is driving the demand for our aesthetics which is a key driver for Solta's outstanding third quarter revenue growth compared to the third quarter 2019. Finally, our efforts to accelerate and strengthen our e-commerce capabilities resulted in more than 
100% increase in the e-commerce sales of our U.S. consumer business product year-to-date compared to the same period in the prior year. Moving to slide six, the impact of the global pandemic is still present, but our third quarter results demonstrated that the Bausch Healthcare operational recovery is in progress. Our team worked hard throughout the third quarter to make sure we had ample supply of our products for patients and customers and to manage our operating expenses. A total company organic and reported revenue declined by 3% compared to the third quarter of 2019. Bausch & Lomb had an outstanding quarter relative to the second quarter of 2020. And our therapeutic businesses, Salix, Dermatology, International, and Neurology, all demonstrated 20 to 30% sequential growth relative to the second quarter of 2020. Thanks to a great team effort and the continued engagement of over 21,000 employees of Bausch Health Company, we were able to preserve cash while supporting each of our businesses, including investments in R&D to build and advance our new product pipeline. With that, I'll turn the call over to Paul to cover the financial results in more detail. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Uh, we had a nice bounce back quarter as all, biz- all of our businesses recovered to varying degrees from the depths of the COVID impact that we saw in Q2. Overall, revenue was uh, down 3% organically from Q3 of 2019 and up 28% sequentially from the second quarter. Uh, considering the many ongoing challenges, that's an encouraging in- indicator that our businesses are on the road to regaining pre-pandemic levels of revenue and profitability. We're a very diverse company by types of revenue and by geographic footprint. While our businesses are rebounding, the pace has been more rapid for some and more muted for others. The differences are based on the types of revenue, for example, surgical versus consumer products, and geography, with parts of the U.S. B&L business recovering more quickly than those same businesses outside the U.S. Adjusted EBITDA of $948 million in the quarter was quite strong and, in fact, was up 4% on a constant currency basis compared with Q3 of 2019. Important safety tip, though. The operating margin you see in Q3, that's adjusted EBITDA divided by revenue, is not sustainable. As we continue to recover, we will allocate more resources to promotional activities to drive the return to sustainable revenue and profit growth above pre-COVID levels. For the avoidance of doubt, we expect that our fourth quarter operating expenses will be considerably higher than what you see on the board in Q3. We're very proud of how quickly we were able to reduce operating expenses to preserve cash and to protect, as best we could, near-term profits. With the recovery from COVID underway, it's time for us to ratchet up our promotional support for our many growth opportunities and to renew our investments in R&D. We'll obviously have to monitor this given the dynamic situation, but that's how we see things today. Okay, let's talk about Q3. Of course, uh, COVID-19 was a story driving reduced revenues. Uh, If you turn to slide eight, this shows revenue by segment and business unit compared with Q3 of 2019. Reminder, when we talk about organic growth, we mean on a constant currency basis and adjusted for the impact of acquired or divested assets. Total company revenue was down 3% organically with B&L International flat, Salix down 10%, Orthoderm down 3%, and Diversified down 2%. There are some bright spots that I want to highlight and some areas where our recovery from COVID is in process but coming at a slower pace. Within B&L International, the start of the quarter was our international pharma business, up 9% organically from Q3 of 2019 on very strong performance in our LATAM and Eastern European regions. In Mexico, we saw a surge in demand for a product called ivermectin, a broad-spectrum antiparasitic that is being used for the treatment of COVID. 
Next up was global consumer, plus 2% organically, with the U.S. leading the way. It was up 11%, and that was on strength in Prezivision, up 17%, BioTrue Multipurpose Solution, up 9%, and a large one-time purchase as we collaborated with one of our key accounts to include our Sue Dry Eye product in an exclusive one-time offer to their customers. Consumer revenues outside the U.S. were down 5% organically as various regions recover at different rates. For example, consumer revenues in LATAM, Eastern Europe, and Canada all grew organically versus Q3 of 2019, while China was flat and Russia and France saw meaningful declines versus the prior year quarter. To be clear, global consumer, like all our businesses, showed major improvement in Q3 versus Q2, but the degree of recovery is very different depending on the region. Global Vision Care was down 2% organically, but was up 20% in the U.S., and that was on strong sales of our ultra-family of monthly silicon hydrogel lenses. U.S. Vision Care benefited from the rebalancing of channel inventories in the quarter as demand picked up, so bear that in mind as well. In the quarter, we sold less than 2 million of infused lenses, but we're very excited about the long-term prospects for Infuse. As we developed Infuse, our goal was design, to design lenses with real points of difference relative to competing lenses. We succeeded and now entered the fastest growing segment of the U.S. and international vision care markets with lenses made using next generation materials to deliver exceptional performance. Sold in the U.S. under the Infuse brand name and outside the U.S. as Ultra One Day, these lenses are expected to be a growth driver for us for years to come. Of course, there were talented people behind this important project, including Jim DeBella, Joe Hoff, Bill Reindell, and Vicki Bariak, among others. Driven by our people, BNL Vision Care is coming on strong. International Vision Care was down 13% organically, driven by the Asia-Pac region, where contact lenses are sold mostly in retail settings. Even though social restrictions were eased, consumers remained cautious due to concerns over COVID and the states of their economies and that resulted in restrained spending and generally less lens utilization. Global surgical declined 7% organically with the U.S. surgical business down 3% and international surgical down 9 The U.S. is recovering more quickly than the U.S. surgical markets. While some markets in Western Europe were flat to slightly positive to Q3 of 2019, the Asia-Pac region and the U.K. were not yet back to pre-COVID levels. To wrap up the BNL international segment, Global OptoRx was down 9% organically, down 9% in the U.S. and down 10% outside the U.S. The continued erosion of the Lodomax franchise in the U.S. due to the LOE was the biggest factor in the decline. In the U.S. versus Q3 of 2019, Visalta was up 32%, Colenza up 35%, and Lodomax SM up 37%. The U.S. OptoRx business also benefited from a rebalancing of channel inventories. Outside the U.S., the decline versus Q3 of 2019 mirrored the decline in surgical revenues, as many of our OptoRx products are used pre- and post-surgery. On to Salix. Salix revenue was down 10% organically. The LOE over Prezo and the expected decline of Blumessa together accounted for about 8.5% of that 10% decline. Cyfaxa was down 3% from Q3 of 2019, down 4% in volume and up 1% in net price. The 4% volume decline is consistent with the year-over-year decline in Cyfaxan extended unit TRXs. On the plus side, despite the environment, Trulance delivered 57% growth versus Q3 of 2019. 
Salix also benefited from the rebalancing of channel inventories as demand picked up in Q3. Sequentially, Salix revenue was up 23% uh, versus Q2, and Zyfaxin revenue was up 21%. The orthoderm segment was down 3% organically versus Q3 of 2019. The beat goes on for Solta, up 53% organically on very strong revenue out of the Asia-Pac region, and that was led by China. The Solta aesthetics business, especially the Thermage platform, has been remarkably resilient in the face of COVID. Our thesis is that consumers of higher socioeconomic standing saw their travel options limited and chose to invest in their appearance, particularly how they appear on HD video. Solta's leader, Tom Hart, has done a marvelous job of setting Solta on a path that even COVID could not derail. I want to give a tip of the hat to our BNL colleague, Cave Koo. Uh, we play a team sport here, and Cave reached across reporting lines and pitched in to help drive Solta's impressive performance, especially in China. Thermage sales were up 70%, and Thermage tips were up 79% compared with the year-ago quarter. All I can say is, wow. Uh, medical derm was down 29% versus Q3 of 2019. LOEs and royalty revenues accounted for roughly 20% of that 29% decline. Salik, Brihali, Duobri, and Altrino all grew versus Q3 of 2019, but could not overcome the declines across the balance of the portfolio. With so many of our MedDerm products reliant upon the flow of new patients in the dermatologist's office, offices, uh, this business has been and continues to be more impacted by COVID than other of our businesses. Diversified was down 2% organically from Q3 of 2019. Neuro was up 8% on strength in Wellbutrin, Aplenzin, Ativan, and Pepsid. In the quarter, Neuro saw an improvement in realized net selling prices for Wellbutrin. This was driven by aggressive management of managed care contracts for Wellbutrin that has resulted in strong realized net selling prices throughout 2020, but especially in Q3. A quick forward look. Managing rebates for a product like Wellbutrin is a dynamic situation. We're enjoying a good year in 2020, but expect that Wellbutrin in 2021 will revert to levels more consistent with what you saw in 2019. For Ativan, in 2019 and into early 2020, we had some supply challenges with Ativan. Uh, as we reestablished supply, we refilled the channel with inventory and are now, now able to meet demand, and that was a helper in Q3. Pepsid is an interesting one. As ranitidine was pulled from the market, demand for Pepsid and generics of Pepsid surged. The generics companies were not able to ramp up supply as quickly as BHC, so our brand Pepsid has enjoyed a nice run year-to-date in 2020, and especially in Q3. As supplies of generics increase, our sales will revert to lower levels. Great work by our commercial and manufacturing colleagues, and that allowed us to capitalize on this fugacious opportunity in 2020. The 12% decline in generics revenue was mainly due to a comparison with a very strong Q3 a year ago. Dentistry was down 21% versus Q3 of 19. Dentistry is recovering at a consistent pace and is up from $8 million of revenue in Q2 to $19 million this quarter. Let's turn to slide nine, the quarterly P&L. I've covered the revenue, uh, start with gross profit. Our gross profit margin decreased 120 basis points from Q3 of 2019. This is in part due to mix, but is also reflective of COVID driving negative manufacturing variances and other hits to cost of goods sold. Mix in these manufacturing variances will be a headwind to our gross profit margin as we move ahead into Q4 and into 2021. In operating expenses, here you can see the results of our efforts to conserve cash and soften the earnings blow as we work our way through COVID. 
Selling, advertising, and promotion costs were down $54 million on a reported basis compared with Q3 of 19. G&A expenses were down $28 million, and R&D was down $20 million. As the third quarter progressed, we excuse me, began the process of ramping up activities that will help us return our revenues to pre-COVID levels, and then we'll grow from there. The level of expense management during Q3 was necessary, but we think it would be unhealthy for us to continue to constrain commercial, functional support, and R&D spending at these levels. The short-term benefit of the constrained spending is that we put a very strong adjusted EBITDA number on the board, $948 million. Uh, flipping to slide 10, the cash flow summary, on a gap basis, we generated $256 million of cash from operating activities. That number was reduced by $48 million due to the settlement, meaning the actual cash payment of legacy legal settlements in the quarter. That's mainly the SEC matter. I bring this up because sitting in our $1.988 billion of cash is $1.21 billion of cash to settle the U.S. stock drop case. When those funds are paid, it will reduce our gap cash generated from ops. So bear that in mind. We remain on track to deliver roughly $1 billion of cash from operations in 2020, adjusted for the payment of legacy legal liabilities, and in the future, separations and related payments. On to slide 11, the balance sheet summary. One call out here, uh, during the quarter, we used $100 million of cash generated from ops to reduce debt. Year to date, to today, we repaid $420 million of debt, and we recently announced that on November 30th, we will repay another $150 million of notes. From a liquidity standpoint, we remain a solid cash generator, even in a COVID world. And at September 30th, we had no borrowings outstanding under our revolving credit facility and the ability to draw $1.1 billion if needed. On to slide 12, we have no debt maturities or mandatory amortization of term loans until 2023. From a liabilities management standpoint, we're in very good shape. On to slide 14. We're keeping our revenue and adjusted EBITDA guidance ranges unchanged from our last update in August. Note that these ranges are broader than we would normally have with only two months remaining in the year. That said, these are not normal times. Even as we prepared for this call, various geographies returned to lockdown or lockdown light status. Parts of Europe, including Germany, France, Ireland, and England, have announced lockdowns of various lengths and restrictions. This is a very fluid situation. We're monitoring it closely. One item to call out is the expected increase in contingent consideration, milestones, and licensing agreements going from roughly uh, $80 million to $100 million. The increase is mainly due to the Allegro and Inovia transactions. Uh, as you see on slide 15, better expected performance across our businesses are expected to offset the impact of unfavorable FX and more rapid-than-expected erosion of the LOE assets. Uh, last thing for me. If you take the midpoints of our guidance for the full year, less the year-to-date results, you'd expect our Q4 revenue to be just south of $2.1 billion and our Q4 adjusted EBITDA to be just less than $850 million. Here are a few things to consider as you look at the Q3 to Q4 progression suggested by our current guidance. First, revenue. In Q3, there are a number of favorable items that won't persist into Q4, including, one, the rebalancing of channel inventories in many of our businesses as demand picked up from the Q2 COVID floor. Note that this is not pipeline expansion. It's the natural increase in the dollar value of channel inventories that you see when sales grow, as they did from Q2 to Q3. Two, in the B&L segment, we had the one-time uh, uh, Q3 order in U.S. consumer. Three, in B&L, we had the COVID-driven, but perhaps less durable increases in sales of ivermectin and Betty Ecta in our international pharma business. 
Four, in diversified, we have the non-durable portion of the improved net pricing for Wellbutrin. And finally, number five, also in diversified, we have the bump in revenue from the reestablished supply of Ativan and the lift from Pepsid. While we expect that all our businesses will continue their recoveries, the items I just highlighted and others will dampen the progression of revenue from Q3 into Q4. At gross margin, I highlighted that mix and unfavorable impacts of, uh, of, to cost of goods sold due to COVID will carry forward into Q4 and even into uh, 2021. We're guiding to a full year margin of roughly 72%. With a year-to-date margin at 72.4%, that implies a gross margin of a little less than 71% in Q4. Finally, I mentioned that we are resuming more typical spending in SG&A and R&D, and our guidance suggests that we will substantially increase spending in Q4 with SG&A forecast to be up some $60 million from Q3 and R&D to be up some uh, $24 million. Put all these things together and adjusted EBITDA from Q3 to Q4 based on the midpoint of our guidance is expected to be just south of $850 million. Uh, that's it for me. Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Paul. Uh, I will now give an update on the Bausch Health recovery in progress. On slide number 17, the highlight here is U.S. Vision Gear, where reported revenue grew by 20% compared to the third quarter of 2019, driven by the Bausch & Lomb Ultra lenses. The chart on the top right shows the change in field consumption in the U.S. year over year, which started to recover in June after significant declines in April and May. While the recovery in Europe and Asia is proceeding more slowly, international vision care is also returning to pre-COVID-19 levels. I want to spend a minute on Infuse, our high daily lens, uh, which launched in the U.S. in August. Launching a product during a pandemic requires innovative thinking and the ability to adapt. Uh, Joe Gordon and his team deserve credit for a great launch at a challenging time. The Infuse lens is doing exceptionally well with patients who experience contact lens dryness. Approximately 77% of new fits are from existing lens wearers and who are switching from another lens and roughly 23% are from new contact lens wearers. Of the patients with contact lens dryness, 73% agreed. Infuse helped minimize the symptom of contact lens dryness. We plan to launch daily sci-high lenses in Australia, Hong Kong, and Canada in the fourth quarter. Turning now to global consumer on slide 18, the chart on the left shows the percent change in U.S. Bausch & Lomb consumption year-to-date on a year-over-year -year basis before COVID, during the stay-at-home orders, and now we see a recovery in progress. Turning to Lumify, on the other side of the page, we also see a recovery in progress. We also received FDA approval for Alloway preservative-free antihistamine eye drops at the end of September, the first and only OTC preservative-free formulation eye drop of its kind. Moving now to Global Surgical on slide 19. Although the recovery in the surgical business has been somewhat slower, both cataract and retinal procedures grew versus the third quarter of 2019. We've shown U.S. data for Stellaris Elite procedures, both the retinal and cataract, in the chart on the left. International surgical revenue is also seeing a recovery in progress. On slide 20, global opto prescription business, COVID had a limited negative impact on Visalta, even during the period of February through July, as you can see from the TRX trend on the chart on the top right-hand side. Bizolta is now approved in seven countries, and we are excited about its future prospects. We also completed several business development deals that will help build out our eye health portfolio in the areas of uh, macular degeneration and myopia. 
I'll highlight two now. First, we acquired an option to purchase all of the ophthalmology assets of Allegro, including the global rights for Illuminate, which is an investigational treatment expected to help reverse vision loss due to dry macular degeneration, an area of significant unmet medical need. The phase two top line data show a promising improvement in visual acuity with 48% of patients gaining more than eight letters at week 28. We also acquired an exclusive license in the US and Canada from Inovia for the development and commercialization of an investigational microdose device of atropine ophthalmic solution, which is being investigated for the reduction of nearsightedness in children ages three to 12. There's clinical evidence for the use of low-dose atropine as a way to prevent progressive myopia in children. And we believe Inovia's delivery technology is particularly well-suited for this application. At slide 21, we've mapped out our systemic approach to rebuild our B&L product development portfolio in areas of unmet medical need. Based on Bausch Alam's integrated eye health platform, we can develop solutions for areas of unmet medical need more efficiently than many of our other healthcare companies. We are focusing on three primary areas, myopia, dry eye, and macular degeneration, and working to build a comprehensive package of new treatment options for each disease. Uh, first, let me talk about myopia, which is a global megatrend driving demand for eye health solutions. Studies have predicted that 50% 50% of the world's population, or 5 billion people, will have myopia by 2050. In addition to the exclusive license from Minovia, I mentioned earlier, we recently acquired an exclusive license for myopia-controlled content lenses designed by BHVI. Myopia is a leading cause of visual impairment in children, and we plan to pair this novel contact lens design with our contact lens technology to develop potential treatments to slow the progression of myopia in children. We are also pursuing the Arise Orthokeratology System, which is a cloud-based lens-fitting software that enables eye care professionals to produce highly customized lenses to treat myopia. Dry eye is another therapeutic area with a huge unmet need. More than 16 million patients in the U.S. are diagnosed with dry eye disease, and contact lens dryness is experienced by about half of the 45 million lens wearers in the United States. To combat this problem, we licensed NovaLeak's investigational treatment for dry eye disease associated with mybovian gland dysfunction. It is a unique mechanism of action that differentiates it from other agents for dry eye disease. And as I mentioned earlier, we're expanding the launch of the infused daily side-eye lenses, which may help reduce the symptoms of contract lens dryness. I'll not repeat my comments on age-related macular degeneration, but as you can see, we are strengthening our B&L product portfolio. Turning now to slide 22 for an update on Salix, let's start with our, our largest product, Cyfaxin, which has been slower to recover from the impact of COVID-19. Declines have primarily been driven by the IBSD indication, which is more episodic and more reliant on new patients than the HE indication. Gastroenterologists have been prioritizing the backlog of colonoscopies and endoscopies over regular office visits, where new IBSD patients would be diagnosed. In primary care, patient priority has changed in a COVID-19 environment with less urgent visits being delayed or deferred until conditions normalize. That said, we are seeing signs of recovery with Cyfaxin 5% TRX growth from the second quarter to the third quarter of 2020. 
I also want to highlight that Rifaximin recently received FDA orphan designation for the treatment of sickle cell disease. Early data demonstrated that Rifaximin may be beneficial in reducing the debilitating pain from vaso-occlusive crisis that sickle cell patients often experience. We expect to start a phase two trial in the first half of 2021 with a novel, and let me repeat that word, novel Rifaximin formulation for sickle cell patients. Finally, we were able to resolve the Cyfaxin IP litigation with Sun Pharmaceuticals, in addition to our prior resolutions with Teva and Sandoz. Turning now to slide 23 for updates on Trulance and Relistore. We've plotted Trulance's weekly TRX trend on the left compared to the same period uh, in 2019. Compared to third quarter 19, Trulance prescriptions grew by 46% in the third quarter versus last year while the market grew only 4%. Trulance also grew sequentially by 7%. Finally, on the right, we show the data for Relistore, which also gained market share and outpaced the market. Year-over-year, TRX volume was up 9% versus last year compared to the overall market, which was down 5%. Importantly, TRX growth for oral Relistore was up approximately 14% compared to the prior quarter. To summarize, we're seeing signs that a business recovery is in progress. Turning to orthodermatologists on slide 24, starting with Thermage on the top right of the slide, with sequential reported revenue growth of 68%, we are seeing sold to recover faster than we expected, largely due to pent-up demand for aesthetic procedures, especially in our Asian business. The customer base for cosmetic procedures is expanding and we believe the increased demand may be partly due to the fact that a portion of the population is diverting travel spend to self-care measures. Jubilee is another example of a product that gained market share during the pandemic. On the bottom left, Jubilee's third quarter TRX market share was up 130 basis points compared to last year. Uh, finally, do ovary for psoriasis on the bottom right chart. You can see the orange light got off to a great start in 2020. But because Duovery is predominantly for new patients, new patient starts were impacted significantly when COVID-19 hit. But compared to non-biological products like NSTAR and Otesla, Duovery is battling its way back, and we're now picking up roughly one-third of those new patient starts. We are making progress, but it is still going slower than we would like. Moving now to slide 25, while COVID has impacted our business, we have a plan to first Focus on positioning our businesses for growth in 2021 and beyond, driven by megatrends and demand for our new products. Second, we are investing in key promoting brands where we have demonstrated that we can gain market share. Third, we are improving our overall operational efficiency through what we refer to internally as Project Core to optimize our cost structure and enable us to generate strong cash flows. Finally, we are supporting each of our businesses with investment in future growth drivers, including R&D innovation, and growth technologies like e-commerce. These actions are all designed to position our businesses for the future as we continue our preparations to create two separate, well-capitalized businesses with attractive growth opportunities. Uh, before I wrap up, I, I wanna give you a quick update on the planned spinoff of Bausch & Lomb on page 27. Uh, since announcing our intention to separate Bausch & Lomb into an independent company, our goal has been to unlock value across our two attractive businesses as soon as possible. Our team has been working diligently to complete all the necessary actions, which include the items listed on the right of slide 27. 
we are making great progress and expect the internal organization design to be completed by the end of the third quarter of 2021. Finalizing the capitalization structure is more complicated, and we are actively pursuing all available options to expedite leverage improvement. Our focus is on positioning these two strong but dissimilar businesses so that the financial markets see attractive growth opportunities for both entities. With that, operator, uh, let's open up the line for questions. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. To ask a question, you may press star then one on your touchtone phone. If you're using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing the keys. To withdraw your question, please press star then two. Please limit yourself to one question. At this time, we will pause momentarily to assemble our roster. Our first question comes from Chris Schott with JP Morgan. Please go ahead. Uh, great. Thanks so much for the questions. Um, just a couple on iCare and a quick one on the separation. On iCare, uh, one of your competitors talked about some of their third quarter lens recovery driven by an inventory rebuild. Did you see anything like that in your results, or is this more just like a true organic kind of recovery in the business? And second, can you talk about the dynamics in the eye care business as we look out to 4Q and beyond? I guess, should we expect a continued B&L recovery in 4Q, or could some of that take a pause with the second wave of COVID that we're seeing currently? And just my quick one on the separation, I think you mentioned the internal organizational processes completed by 3Q of 21. Could the company conceptually separate out B&L at that point, assuming your capital structure needs were addressed? Or is there a gap we should think about between when those internal processes are completed and when you could actually separate the business due to SEC requirements or other report, reporting requirements, et cetera? Thanks so much. Thank you, Chris, for the question. First, on, on the iCare question on the inventory rebuild, I think, as Paul stated, I think what happens with any business, as you show growth, uh, when a customer orders that product for, for a patient, uh, they're going to dispense that, but then as their revenue goes up, they're going to naturally need to, to buy more inventory. So while the overall inventory position has not increased, it's just natural as the volume goes up to expect to see more demand. Uh, as more demand goes up, you're going to see more purchases. So we, we don't feel that there was any overall build in inventory uh, during the quarter in terms of, but obviously they had to order not only for dispensing, but obviously to, to replace those items uh, as they dispense more. On the, on the second question, the dynamic of iCare businesses in the, in the fourth quarter and beyond, I, I don't think we're going to give any specific comments right now other than just say we see a recovery in progress. Uh, we're excited about what that means for the continued um, growth of the B&L business. We, we are seeing a, a very strong recovery in progress in total. And I think the way I would phrase it um, across all of our businesses is that, you know, we're going to be uh, continue to monitor the COVID-19 to be clear, but we are seeing that recovery in progress uh, across all of our business. Um, and then maybe I think the final question, um, whether or not we are ready to, to split uh, the company out in terms of spinning out in the third quarter, third quarter of 2021, uh, we will be ready. Uh, so, say, so safe to say, if our capital structure is in place by the end of 2021, uh, we can, it can be feasible. But, you know, the, we'd have to make sure we work through all the, the major questions out there. As we've said publicly, the best way for us to uh, reduce the overall leverage and what we're focused on is continuing to grow our EBITDA, grow our business. And as we do that, 
as, as well as actively pursuing all available options to improve our leverage, uh, we're going to try to do this as expeditiously as possible. Um, Paul, you probably want to add something as well. well I, I actually wanted to add something on the eye care piece because I think, Chris, the, 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 your question was, was, was twofold, was inventory build but, but also uh, pull through, you know, Im important. It was both. Uh, as Joe, Joe articulated, it's the rebalancing of channel inventories as, de as demand picks up, but importantly, end demand in the U.S. was up uh, in, in a strong way. And outside the U.S., it was up at, in a more modest way. So you know, we, we saw great improvement from Q2 to Q3 in the global vision care business at different, uh, different paces. I specifically called out the inventory with respect to uh, you know, the U.S. Part of the, part of the business because I think if a lot of folks looked and said, gee, is this going to be something that's going to come back to us? They say, well, by and large, uh, most of our channel inventories have rebalanced to reflect the increased demand from Q2 to Q3. Thank you. Operator, our next question, please. Our next question comes from Terrence Flynn with Goldman Sachs. Please go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking the questions. Um, I was just wondering, uh, you obviously talked a lot about the puts and takes going into fourth quarter. Just as we look into 2021, um, can you maybe expand on those as we think about that, particularly on the OPEX side? Is any of this potential savings likely to be more more permanent? And then just had one quick one on the sci-high launch there. Um, in terms of the, um, the share capture, um, is that mainly coming from competitors or is any of that uh, uh, people switching from, um, from any of the B&L brands? Thank you. Well, why don't you take the, the first one on the 2021 20, puts and takes and OPEX, and I think you made some comments on that, but, and then I'll take the, the Sci-High Daily, where's the share coming from? Sure. Yeah, thanks for the question, Terrence. It, it's a great question. I'd say that, uh, you know, through the COVID experience, it's kind of a forced experiment on, on many companies about uh, how effective uh, dollars that you deploy to various activities, uh, you know, uh, can be. And if you, you see what, you see what, it, what occurs when you, when you take them away. Uh, I, we, we would think that our, our OPEX intensity going forward ought to be something more akin to what you saw in 2019, um, you know, versus what you're seeing certainly in Q3. I, I made, it a, made it a point to say the level of, of OPEX spending in, in Q3 produced a nice, uh, a nice EBITDA number, uh, but not one that would be sustainable over the long term if you wanted to grow at the top line and uh, wanted to grow profitability over an extended period. Uh, extended period of time. So I would think that as we look ahead to 2021, um, you're going to see OPEX intensity more similar to 2019 than what it will end up being uh, either year-to-date 2020 or, or your estimate of what you expect it to be 2020. We have the, the rationale for that, by the way, is, is driven in large part uh, by the large number of products that we have um, in launch phase. You asked a question about Infuse. You know, I, I, I mentioned it in my remarks. It, it's you know, Infuse is, is really exciting for us, uh, and it takes uh, promotional resources and dollars, you know, to establish that franchise and then to drive it over a long period of time. And it's not just Infuse; it's Ultra One Day outside the United States, where we're launching currently, you know, in in a couple of other markets like Canada, North Australia, and and you know, more markets to come uh, with Infuse. So, you know, that that's one example. But we have a large number of products that require a greater level of promotional support than what you, certainly than what you saw 
in Q3 be more consistent with what you saw perhaps in 2019? And then on the, on the second part of that question, uh, the infused, where is the share coming from? Um, I have the, the U.S. data in front of me. First and foremost, it's coming from an expansion of the overall market for uh, and what's happening there. The sci-high market is the fastest growing part of the market uh, in terms of what's happening with that product in the United States and around the world for that matter. Uh, number two of the actual percentages, as I mentioned, about 75% of them are from patient switches, 25% from approximately new new uh, patient starts. So that's the, the first place to start. Of the switches, uh, it's, we're getting about 20% of it's coming from our own uh, BioTrue one day, but the remaining part of it, the 40-plus percent that's coming from uh, competitor lenses, some of the best-in-class lenses of like an Oasis or Daily's Total. So we're, we're very pleased with what we're seeing so far. Uh, I will also comment uh, that we're also seeing very strong support for this product uh, in Japan. We're having um, continued record sales months in Japan. Um, so that's also moving forward with us. So we, we do feel we've got a, a great product, and it's really helping patients, as I mentioned on the call, that 73% of the patients who use Infuse believe it's helping minimize the symptoms of contact lens eye dryness, uh, which is obviously a, an issue, and uh, we're, we're pleased to see this kind of result. It's very early, but very pleased with what we think the opportunity is for the future in order to continue to build what we hope will be a best-in-class product for the contact lens wearers for the Sci-Hi Daily. Operator, uh, next question, please. Our next question comes from Umar Rafat with Evercore. Please go ahead. Hi, thanks so much for taking my questions. Um, I think perhaps the first one is um, the obvious one from the print, which is um, the numbers look really good, but the cash flows are really weak, um, perhaps even when adjusting them for the one-time SEC provision. So any color on that beyond, um, any color on that beyond. And then secondly, also, um, Paul, when I run the math on um, your leverage ratios by the time of the spin, and you guys are mentioning four times for the Bausch and five and a half on the Romainco. By my math, um, you'd have to generate perhaps $2 billion plus via equity issuance by the time of spin. Is that consistent with the way you're thinking about it and your expectations? Thank you so much. So, Paul, why don't you take both of those parts of the question, the cash flow question and the, the B&L leverage? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, let's start with the cash flow because it, you know, it, it's a great question. And I'd say that if you look back to uh, the actual results in 2019, we converted you know, about 42% of our net revenues, I'm sorry, of our, of our adjusted EBITDA um, to cash. I, my, I'm looking at my numbs here. It was a, a little over one point, just over $1.5 of cash from ops and 3.571 we just said EBITDA, 42. In a, in a normal, non, air quotes, uh, non-COVID non world, that's pretty good. Um, you know, meaning normalized, meaning circa you know, 3.5B plus of, of, adjusted, of adjusted EBITDA. Now, you know, this year, I think once COVID hit and we provide the guidance, we expected adjusted, excuse me, cash from ops, again, adjusted for those, for the, for the settlement of legacy items to be circa a billion bucks. Um, you know, that implies like a 32%-ish, 32% um, of, of, of adjusted EBITDA conversion. And, you know, is that, it's obviously not as good as 42, but it, it's still, uh, 
it's still not bad. Point out that as adjusted EBITDA drops, uh, you got interest, which does not drop in proportion to adjusted EBITDA. Um, I, I'll actually, it's maybe, maybe productive for me to go through the math, how you get to, you know, to the circa billion bucks so you can see the pieces and then it'll, it'll highlight, you know, why it's, uh, you know, going to be in the low 30s this year uh, versus what had been, certain, you know, low 40s of conversion last year. You know, take the midpoint of our adjusted EBITDA guidance range, 3.225. Um, interest is 1.53 per our guidance slide. Restructuring is 75 million per our guidance slide. Milestones, 100 million per our guidance slide. Taxes using the 8% is about 115 or $16 million. Um, and then the piece that you can't see yet and we'll, we'll see is, you know, working capital this year, you know, so far as a use, it's a pretty subs substantial use. You know, year to date, it's, you know, circa $385 million. And that gets you to, you know, billion 18 or something like that. A billion, you know, just, just above a billion dollars, which would be that 32%, uh, you know, conversion uh, to cash. The working capital is a challenge. Like, if you're looking at this quarter, you know, one of the biggest uses of working capital in this quarter is the increase in receivables from Q2 to Q3, if you're looking at the quarter in isolation. So that, that's a big number when you're, you know, when your revenue goes up sequentially, uh, help me, I, I lose track of focus, uh, 28% sequentially, uh, you're going to see a big use in receivables. And as you'll see, you know, later when you see our full balance sheet, that uh, working capital is, is a big deal here. If you're looking, you know, at the quarter in isolation, and why is it not a stronger cash flow quarter, it's accounts receivable. If you're looking at it relative to last year, I'd say it's inventory. Is, is the big item. But, it, but again, I think the important points are uh, as we work our way through out, throughout, out through this COVID situation, uh, we do convert an awful lot of our earnings to cash. Uh, we continue to reduce debt. And as we continue to reduce debt, that conversion rate, rate will, ratio will go up or percentage will go up uh, because we'll reduce our cash interest, interest costs as well. So um, I think you know, our, our, in the quarter, it kind of was what it was. Uh, we're on track to deliver the billion or billion thereabouts uh, from ops over the course of the year. And as we continue to improve and, and dig ourselves out of the COVID hole, um, you know, we will get back to you know, generating even more cash, which is obviously critically important to us uh, continue to reduce our debt. Yeah, I think on, the, on last, uh, uh, segueing to your other question regarding capitalization structures, I mean, importantly, you know, you, you – uh, you get to choose if you're spinning out BNL what the leverage is, is of the, the entity that you spin. So we suggested circa four. Um, and with respect to Remain Co, you know that is a function of where you start at the time time of the spin. And of course, the things that we need to do between here and there are, as Joe said, we need to grow our operating earnings at a rapid rate, and we need to prioritize the use of our cash. Um, in, order, in order to be able to reduce our debt to get to our leverage ratio that would enable us to affect this, you know, uh, actually uh, complete this, this, uh, this uh, spin-out. The other thing that we can do, of course, is to the extent that we have the opportunity to accelerate that process by, uh, by you know, selling, if able, uh, high multiple assets, that can ex certainly accelerate the process. I think what I articulated uh, last quarter was if we went ahead with something, or perhaps it might have been on the, the Morgan Stanley conference, was that if we went forward with something like what well, I'll call the plain vanilla spin, 
where we we would uh, get tee the company up, uh, lever it up circa four times, pay a dividend back to us, uh, back to Remco, um, and then complete a 20% IPO at that point in time, and that would raise enough money. They said that's the plain vanilla, and that is something that could be accomplished by somewhere towards the latter part of 2022. It, it, yes, it involves raising equity you know, you know, at, at some point. And, and in that example, raising equity in the spun entity. I'll stop there. Thank you. Operator, next question, please. Our next question comes from Akash Tuari with Wolf Research. Please go ahead. Thanks a lot. Um, so just uh, could you break it down um, kind of clearly? What was the contribution on for revenues from inventory stocking? It looks like Durham, Euro, and Opto all were sequentially up. Um, so how did that affect rev? And then can you walk through how the inventory effect negatively con- contributed towards uh, cash flow from operations? And I think just uh, uh, going forward, uh, you're going to have a billion in cash flow from operations this year. Debt pay down looks like 500 to 600 million. As we think about 2021 and beyond, as your businesses rebound, what is the steady, true free cash flow run rate for Bausch? And where would, where do you think debt pay down will kind of uh, average out to organically? Do you think it's going to be more in the $1.5 billion range, or is this more kind of chronically at the $1 billion range? Thank you. Hi, Akash, it's Paul. I'm going to take the, the first one, a contribution on inventory stocking in, in, you know, in, in kind of, you know, how did that affect revenue, you know, revenue in the quarter? How does it, how does it affect cash flow? Well, the, the, we're talking about inventory stocking in the channel. And again, this is not expansion of pipeline inventories. You know, this is the amount of inventory that, that our channel partners hold in order to be able to provide a high service rate to their customers, meaning someone calls up and they want product X, you know, they have they are able to deliver it some you know hundred percent of the time or ninety-eight percent ninety-eight percent of the time. So in order to do that, as as demand rises, you know, they continue to expand their inventory to provide that that service level, but it, it generally is the same number of months or weeks on hand, you know, that, that that they have. And so trying to quantify what was that impact in the quarter, it was certainly a in the Q three it was certainly a tailwind in the quarter, broadly equal to what the headwind was to us in Q2 when people stopped buying inventory as demand fell. It's, it's not an item I call out and say, oh, it's easily quantifiable by, by business, and it's this number. Um, it's just the natural ebb and flow of channel inventories with, with a chain a, 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 um, a uh, change in demand. The second question, I believe, was how does inventory affect cash flow from operations? I think, we're, again, we're not talking about here channel inventories. I think you're, you're talking about our level of the inventories. You know, we've had our challenges as, as, with, with uh, managing our inventories this year, 2020. If you think about where we were entering 2020, we were, we were in great shape. Man, we, were, we had a great fourth quarter. We had a great start to the year. We had a manufacturing plan that, that uh, was geared up to meet what we expected to be a strong demand year across all of our businesses and saw that fall apart in a February, March, uh, March timeframe. 
where it, we have lots of inventory on hand, more inventory than we need. So as that inventory balance is high, that is a use of cash. Uh, waiting, it's cash waiting to be liquidated by, by, by conversion from inventory into an accounts receivable and ultimately to cash. Um, you know, but it's, you know, it's been a challenge for us in, in 2020, and it will be a challenge for us um, and, and until our demand for each one of our businesses returns uh, to a more normalized, uh, normalized level. Um, I think the third part of the question was 2021 and beyond, you know, kind of what's our, a good cash flow runway. I, you know, uh, Omar asked the question earlier, you know, about, you know, the, thinking about the, the projected cash from ops this year. And I think I went through a pretty, I think that's a decent way to think about it is we were clicking along in, in, in 2019 and for 2019, it was 42% conversion of, of adjusted EBITDA. You know, assuming a, a level of profitability, you know, 3.5 B plus, that's a pretty darn good measure of what you would expect our, our cash from uh, generation from ops to be. Remember though, that as we go forward and we continue to reduce debt, you have the opportunity for that 42% to improve based on the continued reduction of our, of our cash interest costs. I think in, our, in the slide deck is, a, and I, um, I don't have the slide uh, number right in front of me, but in the back you can see what our cash interest cost was uh, year to date in 2020 versus 2019. And it's a, it's a nice improvement year over year as we continue to prioritize the use of our cash uh, for the reduction of debt. So, you know, one thing that our company is, <laughs> yeah, we are many things. One thing that we are is we are a strong cash generator. I think we've proven that, especially during an unprecedented uh, you know, headwind from a global pandemic that we can continue to generate in this you know, you know, difficult year, you know, circa a billion bucks. Uh, uh, from operations. So I, I hope, Akash, that answers. I know that we'll have the opportunity to speak later if, if that didn't cover it. Uh, the only thing I'd Thanks, add, Paul. I think Paul did a great job answering it, but the only thing I'd add, Akash, is that on page 36 of our presentation uh, in the appendix, you'll also see those months on hand data, and you can see months on hand versus a year ago, just to do year over year, uh, both our GI business, our DERM business are down, opto and and uh, they're up slightly, but for the most part, there's really no material change. They're all at about one month, approximately. So just to be clear on that inventory question. Uh, let's, let's take our next question, please. Our next question comes from David Rinsinger with Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead. Yes, thanks very much. And thanks for all details. So, um, I have uh, uh, two questions. First, with respect to business divestiture priorities, is there any way that you could frame for us what um, you know what some businesses might be that you would consider divesting, just so we have a little bit better sense for how you would how you would envision potentially the the structures of each of the two new companies, and then second. With respect to separating the companies, Paul, if you could um, comment on the stand-up costs to achieve the separation, the magnitude, and how you'll be reflecting those in uh, in the financials. Thanks very much. 
Sure. On the, on the first question, part of the question, David, on the business development priorities, I think I'm going to have to stay, stand with what we said previously. Um, what we will do is we will look to um, divest assets, and you know we have a history of looking at this from the point of view of the last four years. Um, since Paul and I have joined the company, we divested approximately $3.8 billion of proceeds that we received uh, for asset divestitures. Uh, we received approximately, I think it was about 11 times EBITDA multiple for those assets that we divested over over those first four years, a majority of the coming early in our, our time period. Uh, so we're going to look at some assets and if there are appropriate um, activities out there where we think we can get a, a fair price for those assets that will help us to move this along, uh, we are going to, as I said in the call, actively pursue all options to uh, enhance or delever this company so that we can get to the unlocking of the value of the B&L. And we'll do it as quickly as we can, uh, as evidenced by the previous question that we said, you know, yes, Technically, we could be ready as early as uh, uh, one year from last third quarter of 2020. Uh, so about one third quarter of 2021, we could be ready. But obviously, you've got to deal with the, the question of the leverage, and we'll deal with that uh, as expeditiously as possible by pursuing you know, all available options out there. Obviously, the first one being just growing our EBITDA ourselves, and, and that would obviously help the delevering um, significantly. Uh, there are some additional things we'll look at from a working capital point of view to help also address the the uh, ability to generate cash. Uh, Paul, on the question of the separation and the stand-up costs, I mean, we've identified the, the dis-synergies already, but you want to take that, call? Yeah, what, you, what this is reflective of is really duplicative costs and the cost of actually completing the separation. I think that's what you're getting at, David, and our intention is that we would we would add those back in arriving at, at adjusted EBITDA, and we would guide to those numbers included in the in the line that uh, in in the deck where you see in the back under the restructuring and other is that's where it would appear. I can tell you that you know, year to date and expected you know, for, for 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 2020, it's minimal. It's it's not a lot not a lot of money yet. But and in the future, as it becomes important, we will call it out for you. Operator, we have time probably for one last question, please. Our next question will come from Greg Gilbert with Truist Securities. Please go ahead. Thanks. Good morning. Thanks for for getting me in there. <clears throat> First, for uh, for Paul, curious on your comments on your willingness to issue equity, the comments you've made in the past, or your open-mindedness, let's say. Can you confirm that that open-mindedness relates to the separation timing as opposed to materially sooner than that? And then secondly, um, question about Salta. Um, how does that business fit into your long-term vision of the company? It's been a great story for some time, but I'm not sure it moves the needle enough to matter a whole lot in the grand scheme of the company unless it helps other products or businesses. So can you speak to that as a possible uh, sort of gem of a business that could either attract additional investment um, to build out that franchise or, or possibly the opposite? Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Uh, Paul, why don't you take the equity and I'll take the social comment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a good question, yeah, Greg. Thanks thanks for the question. I mean, they, they, yes, I've been focused on the equity raised as attributable to the, the separation. Uh, suffice it to say that, you know, where we trade today, we're not all that enthused about, you know, uh, raising capital at, at the company level in order to advance uh, advance the process. 
so yeah, that relates mainly to the separation uh, versus uh, versus something, yeah, versus something else. I think is a relatively straightforward answer, Joe. Certainly. And then on that SOLTA question, Greg, we we are very very pleased with what we're seeing with SOLTA. As I, as I mentioned, uh, 74 percent uh, improvement in the revenue versus a year ago is outstanding. Um, and importantly, um, the EBITDA is even even stronger. So we are very pleased with what we're seeing with our our SOLTA business. Uh, as the question of you know what's happening with that, uh, we see significant growth drivers with SOLTA. Uh, number one, we still are seeing this move to aesthetics and as I referred to that Zoom culture of people sitting on on, on um, their computers and, and seeing their face and they want to aesthetically approve it. Number two, we still believe there's a significant upside opportunity for us in the European business with SOLTA as well. Uh, we, we have a strong U.S. business and an even stronger Asian business. Uh, we are continuing to develop our European business. Uh, relative to the question of where this fits in the company, uh, we're very pleased with our overall Durham portfolio in terms of how it fits, but we always will look at opportunities to um, across all of our businesses, especially as we've said with the B&L spin, uh, we realize we have to reduce leverage, and if there's ways to reduce leverage, uh, we're going to actively pursue them across our business because we, we need to do this to unlock the value of B&L uh, as we split up two we think very highly attractive companies with both of our the B&L spin plus the remaining BHC business. We think it'll be very exciting for all of our shareholders. Um, thank you very much for the question, Greg. Uh, that operator, that concludes what we wanted to do today. I thank everyone for joining us and look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you, everyone. Go out and vote today. Have a great day. The conference is now concluded. Thank you for attending today's presentation. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.